This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asen.ac.uk. Okay, good, good morning. Um, welcome to the second uh, set of uh, plenaries. Uh, and we're starting at a much more civilized time, I hope you note. I hope you're deeply grateful. Um, well, we're privileged to have two uh, very distinguished speakers whom I'll introduce uh, uh, at the proper time on uh, two of the central themes uh, of, of uh, Anthony's work, his, his work on religion, particularly his, his book, uh, Chosen Peoples, and also his uh, writing on national myths and how they contribute to national identity. Uh, but our first speaker is um, Professor Stephen Grosby, uh, who's an old friend of Asian, uh, who's a prolific writer, professor of religion at Clemson University. His uh, major uh, field of expertise is on the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he's also written uh, widely on religion and nationality uh, and on social political philosophy, and indeed he's edited a major uh, text uh, on the writings of Edward Schills. Uh, his, one, his, one of his key books is Biblical Ideas of Nationality, Ancient and Modern, uh, he's also written Nationalism, a very short introduction, and he's currently engaged in what is uh, a quite awe-inspiring project uh, called he Hebrewism, the Third Culture, which we look forward to reading in, in, in time. So he will speak about religion and nationalism. So, Stephen, please. Uh, thank you, John, and uh, I want to thank Azen for this opportunity to clarify my thoughts on some complicated matters that have long uh, bedeviled me. I don't think I've made much progress in clarifying my thoughts on these matters. There's no doubt you'll reach the same conclusion. Uh, to speak again at Azen Conference is a great pleasure marred only by the absence of Anthony Smith. I was never Anthony's pupil, but he was my teacher. I learned uh, a great deal from him. That we are here today is an indication that, in an important way, Anthony remains with us. The distinction between his physical absence and his spiritual or intellectual presence has a bearing on the subject of my remarks, the relation between nationality and religion. When 35 years ago, I first read the works of John Armstrong and Anthony Smith, I recognized a convergence of our understanding of nationality. But this convergence was not the decisive reason that drew me to their work. We can divide scholars of our subject into two categories different from those that Anthony developed and deployed. The first category consists of those scholars who acknowledge complications and attempt to account for them. The other category is represented by those scholars who avoid complications. 
They do so because of their fascination with coherent but overly simplistic schema. For example, the theoretically antiquated and historically unjustified dichotomy between the putative low culture of Gemeinschaft and the high culture of Gesellschaft. When I reflect upon Anthony as a scholar, I see someone who embraced the complications of our existence. An example of a scholar who avoided complications was Ernest Gellner. Note Gellner's admission in his Warwick debates with Anthony. I quote, Anthony Smith says modernism only tells half the story. Well, continued Gellner, if it tells half the story, that is good enough for me. This admission reveals a fidelity to schematic coherence at the expense of complicating evidence. Even theoretically, how anthropologically false is the proposition, to use Gellner's idiom of those debates, that nations do not have navels. All human activities, all human activities, including those of face-to-face relations, occur between what has been and what might be. When, as we make choices, we stumble towards what might be, not only do previous accomplishments and failures provide a framework for those activities, but so also does our memory of them. Of course, memory is selective. That this, that this is so has been a commonplace for quite some time. In our subject, the study of nationality, this selectivity of memory was already acknowledged in 1882 by Ernst Renan when he observed, as Anne mentioned yesterday, forgetting, I would even say, historical record, error is the essential factor in the creation of a nation. This selective reception of the past as a result of and the service of demands of the present is the price paid by tradition to be a part of the life of the present. However, if we are content with merely observing the selectivity of memory, we lose sight of something of considerable importance for understanding nationality. Deserving of emphasis is that what is selectively received from the past is kept alive in the present precisely because it is recognized to be significant. To be sure, what is deemed to be significant may be disputed. As my colleague John Hutchinson has formulated it, the nation is a zone of conflict. Nevertheless, what is remembered is not capricious. For example, the attachment to what is perceived to be one's homeland or the idea of the freedom of self-government in opposition to the tyranny of empire are not arbitrary. They both convey significance for the lives of individuals. I readily acknowledge that the images of one's homeland and the self of self-government necessarily involve selective, even disputed acts of the imagination. Nonetheless, those images are not imaginary. The distinction between acts of the imagination and imaginary 
is, I think, elementary. It, too, is a commonplace, having been insisted upon long ago by David Hume in his distinction between artificial and arbitrary. The distinction was ignored by Benedict Anderson. The distinction between acts of the imagination and imaginary is necessary for an appreciation of the significance of nationality. Or, as Anthony time and time again recognized as our task, to account for the passion, intensity, and conviction of national attachments. Recognition of the contested selectivity of memory and its corollary of the continuing development, even transformation of tradition, must not distract us from this task. Too often, analysis of nationality lose sight of the fact that we are dealing with problems of life. Now, to refer briefly to one of the, if you remember, the black spots of Treasure Island, to refer to one of the black spots that hover over my head, when I turned to the category of the primordial, it was not because I thought the attachments of kinship of various kinds, including territorial kinship, was the sole explanation for the existence of nations. It certainly isn't for the existence of national states. Clearly, nations are formations through time, with all that this entails, for example, the transformation of tradition and the emergence of the territorialization of memory. Also obvious is that the formation of national states has to do with the distribution of power and the jurisdiction of law. Like Edward Schill's before me, I recognize not one but several patterns of significance in the orientations of human action. Now, some years ago, in an article that appeared in Nations and Nationalism, I reformulated those patterns for the study of nationality. I did so with the intention of drawing attention to the significance of nationality as a vehicle for addressing the problems of life. Those patterns were, one, the nation as a structure for the transmission of life, that is, as a form of kinship. Two, the nation as a structure for the order of life, as expressed through custom, tradition, and law. And three, the nation as a structure for the freedom of life, that is, self-government, usually requiring a state. The relation between these three forms varies from one nation to another, from one civilization to another, and through time. Anthony Smith never lost sight of the complications involved in the relations between these different patterns or forms. Understanding the relation between the nation as a form for the transmission of life and as a form for the order of life is seen in Anthony's continuing attempts to refine the place of kinship, what he called ethne, in nationality. As I understand it, the so-called ethnosymbolic analysis revolves around the place of kinship and tradition in nationality. 
In examining the relation between nationality and religion, I begin with the individual. In doing so, I proceed differently from the comparative and historical analysis of my earlier effort, which appeared 16 years ago as a chapter in, a, in the book Understanding Nationalism, co-edited by John. To begin with, the individual and not the social relation is to accept the self-dependency of human action, that is, decisions are made by individuals, thereby reaffirming the principle of methodological individualism. However, to take the individual as a point of departure in an analysis of social relations should never be understood to imply that individual self-consciousness is uniform. If it were uniform, we could not account for such facts as ambivalence, regret, and moral conflict. Thus, while, self, while individual self-consciousness is unitary such that we speak of an individual's decision or an individual's personality as expressed grammatically in the first person singular I, we must not forget that unity differs from uniformity. <clears throat> The distinction between unity and uniformity is brought into focus when we keep in mind that one's understanding of oneself is also made up of different attachments that one forms with other individuals. For example, one simultaneously understands oneself as a part of a family, as a member of a profession, a member of a church, and as a member of a nation. These attachments are bearers of tradition. Their contribution to the understanding of the self is why the principle of methodological individualism, while justified, must be qualified. Although different attachments come together as a unity of the personality of the individual, there nonetheless are tensions between them. Except during periods of intense patriotic enthusiasm, one does not understand oneself as only as a member of a nation. And unless one is a saint, one does not think of oneself as only a member of a church. Thus, to employ again John Hutchinson's phrase, the consciousness of the self may also be a zone of conflict. The mind of the individual has been overly simplified by the fashionable preoccupation with the careless use of the ambiguous category of interest and recently by the category of power. The objection to these categories is not that they are without merit, but rather that their use often obscures the tensions within the consciousness of the self, including the reasons for the uncertainty surrounding decision and action that often involve inescapable contradictions and paradoxes. Not all human activity consists of adapting actions to ends in the satisfaction of wants. Humanity's interests are too diverse to be simplified this way. Humans also act out of considerations of, for example, beauty, right and wrong, and salvation. Moreover, we live with a profound temporal paradox. To be faced with a problem means that in some way the future solution to that problem will be different from the past. And yet we proceed as if the solution depends upon the future being like the past. 
This assumption, which pervades the social sciences analysis of human behavior, where it is least justified, is a refuge from the uncertainties of an unknowable world. In fact, recognition of the uncertainties of an unknowable world is key to understanding the nature of profit and economic behavior. The uncertainty can be formulated, albeit with a different tonality, as the mystery of life as we find it in the world of religion. Doing so opens up our consideration what is distinctive about religion as a response to the problems of life. Similar to the tensions within the consciousness of the self, so too the tensions within the shared awareness of being related as a member of a nation are varied and numerous. The unity conveyed by the existence of a national culture should not be understood to imply uniformity. Clearly, the nation as a form of kinship may coexist with the nation as a form to protect life. We call this coexistence national state. However, one of the reasons that nationality is of interest are the many examples of which there is a tension between these two orientations as when individuals sacrifice themselves on behalf of their nation. And obviously, both of these orientations may be in tension with the nation as a vehicle for the freedom of life as one distinguishes between those who are members of the nation and those who are not. The existence of tensions within a national culture should, could not be otherwise, as the orientations of the mind do not vary simply by degrees of intensity. Moreover, the traditions that bear these heterogeneous orientations are not, nor could they be, seamless. The task before us is to ascertain what is distinctive about religion. What problems of life does religion seek to address? The openness of the human mind to the world allows for an extraordinary array of adaptiveness and experimentation. For example, building habitats in the heavens, space stations. However, another consequence of this openness is the ever-present potential for disorientation. Now, as Anthony noted, Religion provides a system of beliefs and practices that unites its adherents in a single moral community. In doing so, religion anchors the mind, providing orientation in the face of the potential for cognitive and moral disarray. While the mind's openness is the biological precondition for constructing habitats in space, it has also resulted in the building of fascist death camps. The latter was a horrific expression of cognitive and moral disorder. Religion's orienting limit to human conduct against wanton murder, as described in God's universal covenant with Noah in chapter 9 of Genesis, was transgressed. The meaningful order of life posited by religion had been violated. A national culture also provides orientation through custom, tradition, and law. Both religion and nationality are relations formed in response to the problems of life. In nationality, one finds a searching to secure the order and freedom of the propagation and transmission of life. In religion, 
one finds a searching to be free from the despair of life. We call religion's goal of that search salvation. Nationality and religion come together as responses to the problems of life when the nation is viewed as being distinctive through an ultimately religious conception of national destiny. In this coming, in this coming together, Anthony, following George Mosse, observed that the nation is invested with sacred qualities that it draws from the older beliefs of religion through the adaptation of religious ritual to national ceremonies. Anthony, however, went further by arguing that it is within the sphere of religion that we must seek the sources of national attachments. He did so because he thought the persistence and passion of national attachments drew upon the faith, devotion, and love of religion. Thus, according to Anthony, the sacred becomes transmuted in the nationalist belief system into secular authority. The result is that the nation becomes the object of religion, leading Anthony to characterize nationalism as a political religion where there is a sacred communion of the people. There is merit to this analysis, one that shares much with the functionalist analysis of religion. However, Anthony's analysis does not reduce entirely the religious attachment to the social relation as does the functionalist perspective. Rather, for Anthony, the traditions of the nation draw upon religious traditions. This is certainly so for the paradoxical emergence of the new Israels throughout European history. The merit of Anthony's analysis consists in recognizing this coming together of religious and national attachments and the unity of a culture that, as such, provides an orientation to our conduct. The motivation for this analysis also has merit as it addresses our task of accounting for the tenacious persistence of national attachments, now infused with the conviction of religious tradition. But does this analysis also overly simplify our task? It seems to me that implicitly lurking within this analysis is an assumption that the unity of religious and national attachments in a culture is homogeneous. The problem here is whether or not the tensions within a nation, within a religion, and within the relation between them have been obscured. Fortunately, as I see it, it is precisely here where Anthony properly recognized the complication. He did not dwell upon it as I think he should have. Anthony rightly observed that nationalism is a distinctly this-worldly movement and culture. The objects of the national attachments are conceptions of a particular territory and people. In contrast, the direction of the acts of the imagination and religion is generally to the other world. This difference in orientation, hence tension between nationality and religion, may be better understood by posing this question. Why are deities understood to dwell in the heavens? To believe that the deities are in the heavens is to recognize that they are beyond our grasp, 
both physically and conceptually. They are, to use the expression, the phenomenological school, wholly other. There is something mysterious about their existence that eludes our understanding in, in a way that nationality is not. We must not lose sight of this aspect of religion, for if we do, then we lose sight of the tension between religion and nationality, even when they converge. To recognize a reality that is wholly other is to recognize an existence separate from this world. This sacred reality represents a challenge to nationality. For example, in Christianity, in um, the Gospel according to John chapter 12, Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And in Buddhism, salvation requires withdrawal from the world. Nevertheless, as we know, nationality has bent religion to its purposes, including in Buddhism, as we see early on in the Mahavamsa. Anthony was certainly correct to concentrate on the conjurant... Anthony was certainly correct to concentrate on the convergence between religion and nationality in his book, Chosen People, and in his wonderful Kaduri lecture. However, this conception of a chosen people must not be extended to religion in general. Moreover, and importantly, there are also tensions between nationality and religion, even in the conception of a chosen people. The idea of being chosen cannot avoid being conceptually buffeted, indeed threatened by the inescapable vicissitudes of life. Those vicissitudes were the conceptual crucible of the Hebrew prophets as they struggled to reinterpret what it meant to be chosen in the light of one defeat after another. Those defeats exposed again the question of the place of the nation in the world. The heightened uncertainty of the place of the nation in the world was reduced through a reinterpretation of tradition, as in Jeremiah's idea of a new covenant and Isaiah's idea of a renewed remnant. In these, in these reinterpretations, the idea of the nation survived. However, while the uncertainty may have been reduced, it could not be eliminated. The uncertainty could not be eliminated because of what lies beyond our grasp. In the idiom of religion, Isaiah put the problem this way in chapter 55. God's thoughts are not human thoughts, nor are human ways God's ways, for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than human ways. As we know, Jeremiah and Isaiah's reinterpretations were conceptually extended in the New Testament thereby reducing the uncertainty of humanity's place in the universe. But the lessening of this uncertainty in the New Testament came at a high price, rejecting altogether the this-worldly attachments of kinship in general and nationality in particular, as the true home of the Christian is the promised land of heaven where one will be united with one's true brother and sister, once fellow Christian. There are many complications here that time does not permit to discuss. For example, 
what the historically ubiquitous distinction between hierocratic and political authority might indicate about the tensions in the relation between religion and nationality. Be that as it may, the strongest argument for coherent cultural unity is where the primary deity is a god of the land or of a particular people, as in the pre-axial age religions analyzed by Durkheim. In this instance, the existence of a distinctive kinship group is thought to be grounded in the order of the universe through the connection of the deity to that land or people. However, the fundamental mistake made by Durkheim was his assumption that the totemic religions were not merely elementary, but also elemental of all religions. And this was an error. But even so, could that connection be relied upon? Would the connection between the deity and the people always exist? It is the uncertainty of our existence which religion in one way or another seeks to address. But it does so in ways that necessarily differ from nationality. Like the pre-axial age religions, the monotheistic axial age religions convey recognition of a world ultimately unknowable to humanity, as in the quotation from Isaiah. But the monotheistic religions convey something the earlier religions did not, a meaning to the world and our existence in it. Thus, there is a paradox or tension within the monotheistic religions as they convey simultaneously mystery and meaning. Now, once again, there may be a convergence between nationality and religion where the meaning revolves around the nation as when the nation is believed to play a pivotal role in divine providence as in the case of the suffering servant of 19th century Poland or the third Rome of Russian Orthodoxy and so forth. I've tried to make a career on this convergence. <laughs> it was a convergence that preoccupied Anthony. And these and other recurring examples throughout the history of the coming together of religion and nationality, the tension of the paradox within monotheism is lessened, but it still exists. The defining characteristic of the rationalization that took place within the so-called world religions was the emergence of criteria by which to judge the affairs of this world. And unavoidably accompanying that distinction is the ever-present potential for a tension between religion and nationality. The monotheistic religions hold accountable the nation to the judgment of religion. This accountability is one way to understand the expectation of a messiah. Even though that messianic salvation has at times been to use Anthony's term, transmuted into a politicized ideological nationalism. Nonetheless, it must not be forgotten that such an ideological transformation 
when the nation is infused with messianic expectation has generally been viewed with either a complicated skepticism, as in the rabbinic tradition, or even as a perversion of religion, as is manifestly so in the Roman Catholic tradition. Throughout numerous papal encyclicals, while the Church recognizes as legitimate the true and genuine love for one's country, patriotic love for the Roman Catholic Church has always been distinguished from the different and greater love for God, a love that recognizes the unity of humanity. I conclude these brief remarks on such an enormously complicated subject with two questions. If both nationality and religion are not arbitrary, what does their persistence, even with dramatic changes, say about human consciousness? Second question. And what does it say about the problems of life that each seeks to address? For nationality, I think it means a continuing significance accorded to kinship, albeit a kinship of varying kinds. For religion, I think it means both the recognition of the indeterminacy of our existence and for the world monotheistic religions, judgment of that existence. In answering those questions, I have described and thus isolated the significance of both nationality and religion. Doing so is not to obscure conceptual tensions within each. Moreover, the relation between nationality and religion indicates that while the orientations of the human mind converge, both within the individual and together to perform a national culture, those orientations are, nevertheless, qualitatively different from one another. They are heterogeneous because so, too, are the problems of life. Thank you. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll take uh, questions, of course, after the second uh, talk. So uh, let me now turn to our second speaker, uh, Professor Natividad Gutierrez, um, not only a distinguished uh, academic, but you might say a public monument. Uh, she is one of the founders of AZEN, um, one of uh, Anthony's... Uh, uh, part of the first major cohort of, of students. And uh, she's professor um, of research in, in social, at the Social Research Institute of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. She's the author of numerous publications in Spanish and English. Her book, Nationalist Myths and Ethnic Identities, Indigenous Intellectuals and the, and the uh, Mexican State, based on her PhD thesis uh, with Anthony, is now one of the classic texts of Latin American studies. 
She has also uh, uh, published Women, Ethnicity and Nationalism in Latin America, and uh, she is co-publishing uh, co uh, a book, Human Trafficking, and engaged in many more research networks and activities than I can possibly enumerate. So uh, please uh, welcome uh, Natividad. Thank you very much, John, for uh, that kind presentation. Um, well, I have prepared a... Oops. Oh, it, it did work. Yeah, there it is. Um, I have prepared this uh, device to help me to go through uh, my... Um, presentation. But first of all, um, I would like to say that, uh, of course, it is a great honor to address this panel um, devoted to pay tribute to our generous and inspiring Professor Anthony Smith. Um, it is really an honor. But I would I will, I will also like to thank the organizers for uh, including Latin America in these reflections, uh, a geographical era with its own problems that has been uh, not uh, included because it has it, its own um, prop, uh, co um, complexity. So um, I will uh, start saying that uh, the ethnic past and the myth of origin have been uh, of course, persistent uh, concepts concept of nationalism and nation building in Latin America, and these are attached to indigenousness. But indigenousness has not always been accepted or celebrated by nationalists and the founders of the states. The myth of origin, of origin and descent is a, is a salient feature of ethne and the most important myth underpinning Anthony, Anthony Smith's theory of ethnocentrism vis-a-vis -vis nationalism. A revisitation of Anthony's work helped us to understand ethnic mobilization and its dynamics through one of, the, of his most classical arguments, the power of the ethnic past and the myth of the ethnic origin. Indigenous peoples or Amerindians, the, um, um, oops, where is the, okay. um, the original inhabitants of the American continents are the carriers of ethnicity, and they, these, are, these make very good cases to discuss. Uh, uh, Anthony's arguments regarding the endurance of ethnicity through the ethnic past. In this paper, I will argue that ethnicity presents different challenges for the nation-making. I shall address then two angles. First, the different ways of using the ethnic past for nationalists, and second, the difficulties faced by present-day present-day indigenous peoples in finding the vitality of, of the mythometer in the social construction and reproduction of their ethnicity. 
Uh, in order to give context to the, to the discussion, it is useful framing three distincting types of nationalism in Latin America. Uh, there you have these three types of nationalism, uh, uh, which uh, have to be explained each one in its own context. The first of these is the nationalism of independence um, from the Spanish colonial regime, say, from 1810 upwards. The second refers to the building of a nation by the sovereign state. And this is very much the building of a nation in Gellner's style of nation building, I will say, through the standardized educational system. And that is a process that, uh, well, I will say it, it, is a, it is more salient, more evident throughout the 20th century up to, the, up to date. And the third type, uh, <laughs> Seeks the redefinition of the nation state, which, as we know, the formula of mono ethnic, homogeneous nation state is exhausted. And uh, these include uh, the, uh, the, new, the, the construction of new formulas of statehood based on the recognition of diversities, not only Amerindians, but also. Uh, African descent, which is a new trend in Latin America. Then we can say that the last decades of the, 20th, of the 20th century, and especially this one, uh, well, is the era of recognition where all diversities are seeking to construct a plurinational state, like in Bolivia, a definition of a pluricultural state, as Mexico now defines itself, or the multicultural state of Ecuador. As you can say, the, the words multi-plurry, you know, are there in the new, in the new uh, frameworks of statehood. Well, also a, really, a relevant feature of the, of the 21st century are the proposals of interculturality in Latin America, moving away from multiculturalism, which is regarded more in a, a, a framework of Anglo-Saxon integration and uh, the interculturality uh, seeks to reflect uh, equal recognition of ethnic and racial identities as well. Well, um, in the, the second type of nationalism um, is uh, very interesting because and then we can see uh, how the ethnic past by nationalists has been into, into shape. That is to say, um, the ethnic past has been uh, um, used in different ways. At least four routes can be identified. An explicit reference to the past, a rejection of the past despite, despite its, its existence, a denial of such past, a rejection of the past because it was an act of conquest. Uh, see, see, for instance, the first, ex, the first route, an explicit reference to the past, 
which refers to the glorification and exaltation of pre-Columbian monumental architecture, basically uh, the admiration of the Aztecs. This uh, claim is, is uh, rooted in the idea of finding originality and authenticity, and uh, that uh, grandiosity is to be found in the indigenous construction of a prestigious civilization without the concourse of the European culture, mind, and religion. Basically, this is the claim of the so-called Creole patriots, uh, the identity that Spaniards born in the New World were seeking to build for themselves in order to uh, 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 claim political independence from Spain. Well, Mexico is the classical example using Aztec and Maya archaeology um, as a prime idea for national identity. Another primordial idea of origin that also involves indigenous peoples is the myth of descent, that is the so-called mestizo myth, the uh, cosmic race, as uh, in some uh, nationalist texts uh, described as, as such. And this is a, a union uh, between male European and female indigenousness. The result, the mestizo, the core majority of the nation. And this mestizo myth is not only a myth in the way that uh, it is a fiction, but, uh, whose, it, but it, the myth is, um, is a teaching a lesson and has guided national building policies throughout the 20th century. So uh, the, the myth is transmitted via textbooks. Well, um, next we have a, what a, a different situation, is the fear of the ethnic past. And this uh, was a typical situation in Peru, where intellectuals and nationalists were prone to reject and exclude the pre-Columbian past from the nationalist imaginary, notwithstanding the splendid archaeology and civilization of the, of the Inca Empire. And, uh, uh, well, frequent indigenous revealings in the, in the 16th century uh, were reasons for discouraging indigenous cultural revivals. Uh, nationalists took the route of, uh, of uh, apologizing the nation, looking at the originality of its nature, landscape, and weather. Evidence for originality and authenticity were found in the Andean mountainous landscape. Well, this is uh, Tupac Amaru, uh, an Inca leader who uh, led a very important revolt seeking to reconstruct the, the Inca Empire. And uh, uh, this is also a myth that I will uh, refer to it late, lately. Uh, uh, how the indigenous groups are using their own myths. But uh, let me finish with the, uh, um, this explanation on how the nationalists rejected or uh, um, included the past. Well, um, an interesting case of uh, how 
there was an explicit rejection of the past was uh, what happened uh, in the southern states, for, for example, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, and the nationalists there argue the lack of civilization and the barbaric ways of their inhabitants while emphasizing the superiority of European peoples and cultures. Amerindians and their cultures could not add value to a nation information. Rather, they were impeding progress and cultural prestige. From a different perspective, uh, we have the, ca the cases of Ecuador and somehow Bolivia. Uh, their intellectuals and nationalists have been also selective regarding the glorification, the admiration of the pre-Columbian past and its inclusion in the national identity making. Because for them to redeem the past was to accept defeat and domination from neighbors. Peru through the Inca uh, Empire and later Chile and uh, uh, because the glorification of the, of the past in Ecuador basically meant to recognize the superiority of the, Perunca, of the Peruvian Inca Empire and its wars of conquest and territorial expansion. Uh, the, uh, in these worlds, the Mesoamerican and Andean, we have seen that uh, there are uh, inevitable links with the, with the ethnic past, but we have seen, generally speaking, how such has been appropriated and reformulated by uh, non-indigenous el elites and intellectuals uh, for purposes of national, of national identity making. Uh, the past, as we have seen, has been regarded as a problematic issue because it, was, it became associated with indigenous revivals. The 20th century nation and ethnicity have a very complex and contradictory, and contradictory uh, asymmetry. Uh, as we know, the nation seeks to make a homogeneous community and its members to have something in common. Thus, ethnicity uh, was a kind of an obstacle that needed to be assimilated by the standard educational route or eradicated with, a gen with genocidal massacres as it happened in Argentina and Uruguay. And these asymmetric relations between nation and ethnicity have generated a deep socioeconomic inequality and racism between the majority and the minorities. Ethnicity is then marginal, unrecognized, lacks prestige, and it survives in the realm of discrimination and exclusion. But also we can see a, an, another side, and that is that uh, ethnicity in Latin America is persistent, is unpredictable, and it has a capacity to respond and organize itself through political mobilizations that uh, have been taking place in the last, uh, in the last decades. Uh, for instance, uh, we have uh, seen um, 
uh, how indigenous peoples, how, uh, uh, how they have achieved worldwide notoriety because their uh, participative role in national affairs. So this exclusionary situation has also pushed them into a, into a, a having important roles in the democratization of the state. You have probably heard, you probably have heard the uprising by the Zapatista Liberation Army in Mexico over 20 years ago, uh, the foundation of the plurinational state in Bolivia, as we have seen, and also, well, this, these are two cases in point. In point. So we might ask how uh, indigenous peoples, if they have an ethnicity which is marginal, how they are using their own past, past to express them politically. Or uh, also we can ask how are they using ethnicity for other purposes, and that is to defend natural resources and territories. In other words, in other words how is the ethnic past reappropriated, reinvented, or fabricated? Because as we know, that was a, 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 a special concern of Anthony's a, a theories, and I think here we can find a very interesting methodological challenge to the work of Anthony in relation to Latin America, that is to say how this ethnic, et marginal ethnicity is using the past. Can I have some water, please? Thank you. Well, um, something very important to say about uh, indigenous groups is that uh, they are very rich in mythological information. They have a, a, a very uh, rich uh, mythomothers, let's say, uh, but uh, they have also a very strong idea uh, regarding uh, the basic foundation of the, uh, the, of identity, that is to say, where we come from. And uh, they have a lot of ethnocentric ideas expressed of, in myths of origin and descent, referring to the initial formation of the group. The indigenous peoples uh, present themselves or refer themselves usually as the first inhabitants, the first who speak the tongue, the first men, or as we know in Canada, they call themselves the First Nations. Um, but um, even when we know that these uh, uh, ethnic groups have very uh, potent uh, myths of origin or descent, we now have a, a practical problem or a structural problem a problem of agency as well, and that is that that knowledge is not in the possession of indigenous peoples themselves, generally speaking. 
This is, this is at large a specialized knowledge produced by experts and academics engaged in disciplines such as epigraphy, paleontology, archaeology. So uh, uh, indigenous peoples have little access to such information. Uh, the Mexican school system inculcates a standard view of history based basically on the le legendary Aztecs. And other school systems, especially in the Andean world, do not include in their educational plans the teaching of indigenous histories. The only possible way for ethnic information to be communicated is by oral tradition, but that is not enough. Indigenous intellectuals and professionals, there are few of them, and they are researching their own past, but it is, as we know, a minority. So how is then ethnicity related to the ethnic past? Um, we have at least two uh, uh, approaches. On the, on, the, on the one hand, uh, we have um, a dominant ethnicity that is embodied in the nation and has at their disposal institutions. The school, school system is one and another is the media to reproduce the system of information that nurtures national identity and social cohesion. Dominant ethnicity is able to assimilate or reject the ethnic past, as we have seen in the cases previously uh, argued. On the other hand, we have the ethnicity of indigenous peoples, the, uh, the appeal of the past, their ancestors, they have a wealth of symbols and myths, but it is largely marginal. It hardly enjoys recognition or prestige from the dominant ethnicity, the nation, and it lacks institutions to disseminate itself beyond the local community, the family, or the clan. Dominated or subordinated ethnicities have a rich symbolical capital, but they do not make a call to glorious ideas of the past for prestige. They have indigenous intellectuals that have a limited scope of influence. Today, today's indigenous intellectuals and revivalists emphasize the grandiosity of nature and environment, and in which they play, if you want, a romanticized role as guardians and keepers of the earth and environment. Indigenous appeal for their ethnic origin as a cultural idea is still problematic for indigenous peoples, as I have been saying. Uh, now let me say that um, uh, uh, when the past has, been taken, has, not been, has not been taken over by official nationalism, as it happened in the Andean societies, uh, or where memories of such a past refer to acts of conquest by neighboring peoples, the recovery of ancient traditions takes place through direct interchange with nature. 
nature is to be found, as we know, in the land, the homeland of, of ancestors, and then there it is uh, becoming, um, uh, becoming uh, a very uh, notable, a fierce defense of, nat of natural resources throughout the continent. The Aymara and Quechua peoples from Ecuador, they have common reference that make them to have a sort of a pan-Aymara or pan-Quechua identity, and that is based on the idea of totality and abundance, referring to a female symbolism, which is the symbolism being the mother, the mother earth and uh, uh, that symbolism of the modern earth called uh, Pachamama is also the, uh, 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 the cultural idea uh, behind a very important political party which uh, Pachacutic, uh, which uh, uh, had a, a very important uh, role in changing the political direction of Ecuador. Uh, now, the uh, indigenous uh, revival, uh, as I have said, is activated by environmentalists and uh, defending natural resources. We have seen throughout the continent, from the United States to uh, uh, Argentina, that uh, there is a, a rejection of what is called a neoliberal capitalism, and uh, the, 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 the exploitation of mining companies, construction of pipelines, road construction, and uh, all this uh, uh, infrast infrastructure which is supposed to cause damages to life and the environment, and then it is taken as a, as a, as a, new, as a, a case in point by indigenous peoples. So um, in the American continent, the, uh, this is the idea of uh, what the Andean world sees itself as a, having a role of protection of the land. Uh, uh, because as, as I have mentioned, the, uh, the, the threats to uh, land uh, of natural resources are uh, very recurrent. Um, so, uh, and so recurrent that at least we have recorded 153 cases involving clashes between indigenous peoples and their organizations with national governments, transnational corporations, and so on, and they are reinventing a, a new kind of mythology so as to face with these natural damages. Well, as a way of uh, conclusion, um, well, of course, there is a great legacy uh, that Anthony Smith uh, has uh, left us uh, for Latin American cases because uh, we see that uh, the ethnic past is problematic. Uh, in some cases is admired, in others is rejected or ignored. 
But um, I think that what we have to bear in mind is that um, um, the, how this new revival is taking place. And uh, also I have to, to say that evocation of ethnicity has another uh, theme, which is the preservation of burials and ancestors. Then we can see another line uh, suggested by Anthony Smith. If we, if, if I would like to go a bit further by saying that because of official nationalism, uh, when it did not took over, when, uh, when, the, when official nationalism didn't appropriate, didn't uh, exclude the pre-Columbian past, like in the Andean world and the Southern Cone, we can see a revival of indigenous, of indigenous myths. For example, you probably remember the uh, image of the Inca Tupac Amaru, and uh, there was a, a picture at the bottom of the uh, Tupac Amaru being um, uh, uh, being tortured uh, because uh, he was his body was um, turned apart, uh, turned apart in the direction of the four four cardinal points. So that was uh, the Spanish punishment for his uh, independent leadership. But that has created a very interesting myth, which is called the myth of the Incari. And, it's, and, and the, the myth says that one day the body will become united. And then when it happens, uh, then the Inca empire will come will come again into being. So the, the myth says when I will come and turn into millions. So that is an example that, uh, uh, that show us how uh, other, in other contexts, uh, indigenous peoples are working out their own ideas of the, of the past. Another interesting situation is taking place in Argentina and Uruguay, in which, uh, despite, despite rejection of the past and extermination, genocidal massacres that were uh, uh, um, uh, carried out in order to exterminate the, um, the indigenous peoples, the 21st century is witnessing a revival of ethnicity. New groups are emerging, and you might say they are invented or semi-invented, or I mean, are we here to judge if they are legitimate or not? I don't think that is our role, but the, the, the point is that ethnicity is becoming very, very active. So Anthony's approach of locating a, a ethnicity as a, as a hardcore uh, in identity has room to be validated in the ethnic minorities and dominating ethnicities. So in both cases can be uh, um, validated. And that was one of my uh, discoveries when I was uh, studying with, uh, with Anthony that uh, 
a, a dominant ethnicity, of course, has, a, has as we have seen, a, a very explicit selection of the ethnic past, but ethnic minorities also have their own past, and they are reinventing and fabricating it because, and then perhaps here comes the Gellner com complement, which is that uh, the reproduction of ethnicity needs institutions. So ethnic, ethnic minorities lack institutions, lack uh, institutions, say a state or some more access to power where dominant majorities will have states of their own and therefore they have more means to reproduce or disseminate the core ideas of ethnicity backing up identity. So thank you very much for your attention. Stay, come, come, uh, both come up, and uh, both, uh, both uh, very fascinating talks, so I'm sure there will be quite a few questions. Um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Athena and then Eric, yeah. Well, I very much enjoy these brilliant uh, presentations and analysis of um, um, nationalism, religion, and ethnicity. Uh, I have um, two questions, one for each of our speakers. First of all, with St Stephen, uh, Professor Grosby, uh, I was um, uh, thinking about uh, this problem, this central problem, the convergence between uh, nationality and religion and was wondering um, whether um, about the explanatory power of the notion of the chosen people um, and whether the convergence between nationality and religion becomes uh, even more powerful when um, um, the Hebrew concept of the nation um, becomes um, uh, 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 the nation as a chosen people becomes uh, generalized, universalized through the spread of Christianity and maybe the spread of Islam, the Abrahamic uh, concept of the nation. And uh, with the, when Christianity takes over the, con the Hebrew concept of the nation, then you have this competition among Christian nations um, about which one is the most chosen. And uh, with the spread of Christianity, including Latin America, we have this uh, predominance, probably, in in the world, for China and India maybe, non-Christian and non-Judeo-Christian, non-Abrahamic regions of uh, uh, Antony's uh, um, the paradigm of nationalism as that of a chosen people. Um, I don't know if I have um, formulated my question correctly. So how powerful is it is, um, nowadays to, uh, to see Hebraism and nationalism as being one. Yeah. Um, and for uh, Nativitat, I wanted to, to ask if this concept now of the plurinational states that emerges, is it a transformation of the concept? Of, is it an, a, a denial or rejection of the nation state, or is it an even more powerful recognition of the idea of the nation in state formation in Latin America? And, 
Sorry, Eric, and uh, yeah. Okay, yes, yeah, similarly, I, I enjoyed uh, both papers immensely and have a question for both. And I'll start with uh, Stephen Grosby. Who, uh, I guess the question is really around, I mean, you were talking a lot about religion as, as narrative and the substance of religion. And I'm just wondering about the idea of religion as an ethno symbol. So somebody, as an ethno symbol, so somebody who is really quite ignorant, say, of the stories and the narratives, but who, who identifies as the eth ethno symbol. So, for example, we know support for the far right in Euro Western Europe. A lot of far-right parties will talk about Christianity as, as a symbol of the nation, like Marine Le Pen. But practicing Christians will tend not to vote for these parties. And it's partly because of that universalist message you talk about. So, so maybe just a symbolic kind of religiosity seems to be the best fit with certainly a secular ethno-nationalism. Any, just, just any thoughts on that? Um, Natividad, I, I guess following on a, a little bit from um, uh, from the last question around this this issue, you talked about this plurinational, and I just wonder whether whether this is an ideological division, a bit like nation as zones of conflict, where the left or liberal spectrum is buying into the plurinational, but the conservative element in society is not, and is maybe still wedded to a more maybe indigenismo or maybe even a, a European conception. So how much polarization is there in this concept? Okay, and we'll take one final question this first round, yeah. Thank you. Uh, for Professor Grosby, uh, you talking about com uh, complexity, you mentioned uh, the term uh, following the, uh, uh, the nation as a zone of conflict, you said that also the self is a zone of conflict, uh, in conflict, uh, while transition between religion and national modernity, modern, uh, modern nationality. And I, if you can a, li a little bit elaborate about this, because it's it's really uh, interesting uh, when while you look at case studies in early Zionism, you can see that. Uh, Actually, many Eastern early Zionists, Eastern European early Zionists, um, uh, shows in it that there is a, a conflict within it, the self. So, how how the transition was made uh, before and after, you know, uh, the, the the establishment of of the nation idea. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Steve, would you like to start? Um, can you all hear? Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. maybe uh, unless we. Yeah, microphone, I think. Do your Elvis act. Yeah. I'm a guest. Um, let me start with uh, uh, Dr. Kaufman's question first. You know, um, religion is a term that we use to describe fill in the blank. Um, and that's, uh, it, it, and really, uh, uh, one way that I understand, especially. Uh, the first half of Anthony's work uh, 
was to try to clarify uh, the categories that we use, and particularly his uh, refinement of, of definitions of like nation, ethne, and so forth. And, and religion is really a, has always been such a, um, a, a it is. Oh, I hate to use. I I, I really uh, believe me. I hate to re bring in Wittgenstein. Um, but it really is a, a category of family resemblance. Um, it, it's, it's not a precise category, and yet I don't see how we can get away with, without, we have to use it. Um, but uh, in addition to dogma for the world religions, religions also, uh, uh, for, many, for many individuals, understandably, and even really for many religions, it's more of a way of life. And I think that's the way to, to back into your question when we think about this way. Um, if, you know, I can just, on, a, on, a, on one rather obvious level, a religion is associated with the national tradition, helps constitute a national tradition. France, for example, has always been, uh, and this is, of course, forgetting, <laughs> forgetting a Catholic country. Well, of course, especially after you kill a lot of Protestants, it's a Catholic country. <laughs> you know, but all right. You know, so, and that's part of what motivates, you know, those voters who vote because this is what they do as French, even though uh, those who are worshipers and are ambivalent about it. Um, but that's on, on one level. But I think on a more important level is the very ambiguity of the category. Um, if you see it as sort of a way of life, and that's particularly the case for religions where law is, is very important. That would be uh, Judaism and Islam in contrast to uh, particularly the Protestant traditions. Um, it's they're very hard to disentangle. I don't know if that was helpful or not, but... Um, secondly, I, I took uh, Athena's question as a, as a very good... Uh, formulation of a position, and I, I think there's, there's great merit to it. Um, I, I admired very much Anthony's Kaduri lecture. I, I thought it was excellent, and it's, it's a lecture that uh, resonated with my ideas and so forth as well. Um, of course, the covenantal promises revolved around election. So it's an easier case. I think, um, but just as interesting, if we explain a little bit about the covenantal election, you know, I've always been taken with the um, development of the national saint, which is not part of the covenantal tradition. But it is a, um, if you will, we'll call it a adaptation, a, either a warping or an adaptation. I would choose, <laughs> choose your pejorative, of uh, universal religion to uh, a more particular, what do you want to call it, national or ethne, blah, 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 purpose. So that's, uh, as far as the third question goes, you know, uh, I myself have never been uh, overly impressed with um, all the work on banal nationalism. I frankly found it rather banal, as a matter of fact. But all right. But I will say this. Um, 
uh, we tend to, uh, it's, it's, as academics, as intellectuals, we deal with abstractions. That's what we do. Um, and the nation is, is an abstraction that we deal with, that we write on, and so forth. And it's hard to, but we have to, should keep in mind we're always dealing with individuals. And, and a recognition of being related. So that's why, for me, it is no difficult jump to go from the zone of conflicts within the individual to the zone of conflicts within the nation, because how could it, individuals make up nations? As now, it's not just individuals, and then we have to deal with the problem of institutions, which are bearers of those, of those traditions that are recognized within the mind of the individual. So I, I just, well, thank you very much for uh, your interesting question. Um, I will say that um, Athena and Eric, um, I will say that uh, from the year 2007, um, there has been in most Latin American countries, uh, in some countries earlier that, that, than the year that I've just mentioned, a reformulation in their constitutions regarding the, how, how uh, the states are going to start a process of transition towards the recognition of, the, of, the, of diversity. So there is an understanding that diversity has to be recognized, and that has uh, started by reforming the constitutions, the, the constitutional frameworks. So uh, then the new concepts that we have seen in these constitutions is the plurinational state, the multicultural nation, and so on. It, it changes uh, in, uh, 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 from uh, Mexico to Ecuador and so on. So what is, what is behind that idea? There is no uh, one idea, I will say, what backs up this idea of uh, how the state is going or how are they going to include diversity? Uh, with the majorities. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it, we might say it, it has an ideological overtone. Well, it, there is a lot of influence from um, Marxist ways of understanding ethnicity, calling ethnic minorities nationalities. I don't think that uh, will solve the problem, but what is important there is how to make possible that these minorities, we can call them nationalities or, or, or keep calling them uh, ethnic minorities, but how are they going to get some access to power or have some political representation? So, so far the influence has come from uh, the uh, former constitutions of the ex-Soviet Union and the translation of the, uh, the Chinese uh, constitution, which rec recognizes that ethnic minorities are nationalities. So, uh, because there, there, there are also very important ethnic minorities or racial minorities, 
which are, which claim being direct descendants of Europeans. In, in Bolivia, for instance, in Uruguay, there are other cases of uh, peoples who, people of nations, they call themselves nations, the Kamba nation, for instance, who call themselves as a white nation which writes in the American continent. So uh, that new diversity will have to be included. So far, it's just words. <laughs> yeah, we've got a, another question. But while we're waiting, and some there, can I ask a, ask a question of Nativitat about the global dimension um, of this, these ethnic revivals? As you say, ethnicity has become the kind of language through which people express both cultural and political values now. Uh, I, I remember reading, someone sent me copies of the Dalit Voice publication of Untouchables in India, and uh, they were fascinated by Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam in America. They had regular columns on his work, and there were people from Farrakhan writing it. And they were making parallels between the kind of struggle against white supremacy in the States and their struggle against what they saw, the Aryan Nazis of the Hindus of North India. And I just wonder to what extent uh, there is like, this kind of transnational mutual influence, uh, say, of, of uh, the groups that you've been discussing in Latin America, and how far that's reshaping both the way they see their past and also how they politically organize in the future, in the present. So, uh, so we've got... Um, Yes, this gentleman here, uh, and 